Thanks, guys. Appreciate the praise and worship this morning. Thanks for leading us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've come to the part of our service now where we open your word. I pray that you would um, guide us through this text this morning, help us to apply it to our lives and to use it in a way that would not only benefit us, but bring honor and glory to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the measure of a man? And by the way, ladies, when I use that phrase, measure of a man, I'm not speaking of a man in terms of a male person but rather a human or mankind. So you're included in this as well. I'm sure you've probably heard that phrase before, the measure of a man, but what does it mean? Well, it means how do you judge a person's value or worth? It's been used for a long time. The earliest use that I could find goes all the way back to the 5th century B.C. And that may not even be the earliest. That's just the earliest I found. The Greek philosopher Plato, this was his answer to the question. He said, the measure of a man is what he does with power. And it's been used, I mean, probably thousands of times, maybe even tens of thousands in the uh, the century since then. Here's, here's a couple more for you. The distinguished 18th century poet and playwright Samuel Johnson. He said, the true measure of a man is how he treats someone who can do him absolutely no good. Um, civil rights activist and preacher Martin Luther King Jr. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. On the lighter side, Chicago Club's shortstop and first baseman, Ernie Banks, the measure of a man is in the lives he's touched. More recently, high school football coach and motivational author, Bill Courtney, he said this, the measure of a man's character is not determined by how he handles his wins, but how he handles his failures. As you can see, we have kind of been all over the map. I've been pulling from different times in history, different uh, types of people, and some of them maybe not even Christians. So let me finish with this one, which would maybe be a bit closer to the way you and I tend to think. The 19th century evangelist, publisher, and founder of the Moody Bible Institute, D.L. Moody, said the measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but how many men he serves. Now, I could keep going. I could probably fill the whole uh, rest of the service just with quoting people on what they think the measure of man is. But I think that the point I'm trying to make is already well made, and that's this. There's a lot of good thoughts up there that I've shared with you, but there's not a whole lot of agreement on what is the measure of a man. And I would say that each one of those um, quotes has something to commend it, but um, 
Is one better than another? How would we choose? How would we, how would we decide which of those that we would accept and which we, we might reject? Well, maybe we can find some help in today's study. We're going to be in 1 Samuel. And we're going to start in chapter 9. And we're going to try to get through chapter 11. Now, it's hard to cover three chapters in one sermon. So obviously, I will be skipping around a bit. I will not um, try to deal with every single verse. Um, but I would recommend that you take some time to read all three chapters beginning to end when you get a chance, maybe even this afternoon. Uh, last week in our study of the life of Samuel, we learned that Israel had asked for a king. And at first, Samuel was upset by this, uh, but God assured him, they are not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me. And he commanded Samuel to give the people what they asked for. So let's review again what it was that they asked for uh, in First Samuel chapter 8. Starting in verse 19, it says, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's what they wanted. That's what they were asking for. But at the end of chapter 8, we saw last week, Samuel sent everybody home, but the issue has not yet been resolved. Who is going to be the new king? How are they going to find the right guy for the job? And chapter 9 begins to answer that question. And uh, as we pick it up, chapter 9, verse 1, it says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zerur, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power, and he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And then if we can skip down to verse 15, it says, Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me where's the seer's house? Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. So right off the bat here in chapter 9, we meet the man who will be Israel's first king. Now the part that I skipped over uh, deals with a, a an incident where uh, Saul is looking for his father's lost donkeys. Um, and we're not going to take time to go into that today. Some people believe that that part of the story is intended to show us Saul's lack of leadership, in, especially in contrast to the next king who's coming in a few chapters, David. That's possible, um, but I think primarily it's to show how God brought Saul 
to Samuel. He used this incident of the lost donkeys to bring Samuel and Saul together. We see that in verse 15 and 16 where he says, uh, this is the guy who told you was going to be coming uh, when I told you about it yesterday. But the question that, that, that pops into my mind as I read these few verses is, since God has told Samuel that Saul is the guy, he's the one, why is it that Samuel delays in making him king? In verse 19, he says, uh, um, I, I want you to, to eat with me today, and tomorrow I'm going to show you some things. Now, why does he delay? And I wonder if maybe it could be that he wants to take the measure of the man. And so it begs the question that I started with. What is the true measure of a man? And I don't know if at this point in the story, Samuel is still not convinced in his own heart. You'll remember when God first told him that to, that to go ahead and give the people what they want, he kind of argued with God a little bit and, and God had to, to kind of come down on him and say, no, this is what I want you to do. Um, so maybe Samuel's still trying to work through that, but, but I want you to notice what he does. Okay? So in verse 19, he says, uh, 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 I want you to go up before me to the high place. I want you, you know, I want you to go before me, Saul. That, that's a way of showing Saul, uh, deference and honor. And, and it doesn't stop there, right? It's gonna continue. Look at verse 22. It says, now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. There were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said to you, set it apart. So the cook took up the thigh with its upper part and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, here it is, what was kept back, it was set apart for you eat for until this time has been kept for you. So what is Samuel doing here? He is he's showing deference, he's showing honor to Saul. He's putting him in the special place. He's giving him the special portion of food. What do you think Samuel might be trying to accomplish by this? I think that he is kind of testing him. Kind of like Joseph did. Remember remember when Joseph uh was uh, the second in command of all Egypt, and uh, he he ran into his brothers, and you know they they had a, a, some things go back and forth, but eventually, so he he sent them back and had them bring back Benjamin, and then he had this great feast. And what did he do at the feast? He kept heaping all the honor on Benjamin. He gave him double portions of everything. He gave him the seat of honor. He was testing his brothers to see how they would react. I think Samuel's doing this kind of the same thing here. What, what will Saul do if he's treated this way? How will he act? And I think that's usually wise and prudent. I think it's good for us that to, um, to test people. If we want to get the measure of a person, we need to kind of Find out what they've got inside, how they're going to react in certain situations. But maybe it's a little bit odd here because, well, God's already told him that, that this is going to be the guy. So 
why is Samuel testing him? Well, it's not just for himself. I think also, and maybe this is even more important, he wants to show Saul how he's going to react in certain situations. uh, Notice again in verse 19 when he said to, uh, to Saul, he said, go up before me to the high place. You shall eat with me today and tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. What does that mean when he says, I'm going to tell you all that is in your heart? Some people think it just refers to um, him letting Saul know what's going on with the donkeys, the lost donkeys. But I think it has to be more than that. I think that Samuel understands that Saul is, is going to be made king. He's going to be put in a position where people are going to be giving him deference, giving him honor. And he not only wants to see for himself how Saul is going to react, but he wants Saul to experience this and see how he's going to react. It's going to reveal some things to Saul about what might be in his heart. But I think that this is a good example for us to follow. Like I said, I think it's a good idea for us to... to um, to test people to see what's in their heart when we're trying to get their measure. I think that many people have gotten into bad relationships for a lack of testing the measure of a person. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about romantic relationships or marriages. I'm talking about, it certainly includes those, but I'm talking about business relationships, contractual arrangements. You know, a lot of times people uh, get into a, a, a deep, and binding relationship of some kind with people, and they didn't do their due diligence to test and find out what kind of person that that they were, and then they find out later, when it's too late, that they're not who they thought they were. And so I think this is a good example for us to follow. But what stands out to me and what we've read so far is that um, this Scripture is emphasizing Saul's physical stature. Notice in verse, up in verse 2, how he's described. He's described as a, uh, as a choice man. Um, that, I think that refers to uh, him being in his prime. It, he's in peak physical condition. I think that's what that means. Um, he's also described as handsome. In fact, he's, he's more handsome than, uh, than every, uh, well, not more handsome, but he's, he's as handsome as anyone. He's, He's at the top, the cream of the crop of all the Israelites in terms of that. Um, it also says that he's big and tall. He stands head and shoulders above anyone else. And so it's emphasizing his physical stature. So, so that is that the true measure of a man? Is it um, physical stature? Well, I think there's more going on here than just Saul's outward appearance. Most people uh, would say that outward appearance is a very shallow way of judging people, and, and I think that we would agree with them about that. Um, even though there are a few situations where physical stature is a valid way of judging somebody. Um, oh, got ahead of myself, okay. So, for example, if you are five foot eight inches, 
chances are you probably will not be playing center for one of the teams in the NBA, right? That's a pretty good bet, right? I mean, look at these guys, seven foot, seven foot four, seven foot seven. That's what it takes to be a center in the NBA. If you're five foot eight, you're probably not going to be considered for that job. And even if you are tall, you know, just being seven foot doesn't mean you're, you're a shoe in for the job either. You still have to have the physical skills necessary to do the job. Another job that you probably wouldn't get if you were five foot eight would be uh, the actor who plays R2D2 in the Star Wars movies. Right? You're not going to fit in that little can. It's just not going to happen. Okay? So there are, um, some situations where physical uh, stature is important. I remember when Kathy and I first started dating, um, she comes from a long line of firemen. And this was a great debate because at the time, this was the late 80s, early 90s, Los Angeles where we lived, that, that the fire department there was trying to get more women onto the fire department. And they were having a hard time because the women couldn't meet the physical requirements and so they were lowering they were bringing those requirements down they wanted to get more women onto the to the fire department and while that seems like um you know not such a bad idea at first think about it for a second let's say you're a guy like me okay and you uh you're knocked out in a burning building and somebody needs to throw you over their shoulder and carry you down one of those long ladders. You want a, you want a five foot six, 120 pound little girl showing up for that job? Probably not. It's, it's not a knock on women. I'm not trying to say that they're inferior, but there is a certain physical requirement to that kind of job, right? Um, and so there are valid situations where physical stature is important. And we can't even ignore those today. But for the most part, judging people by their physical stature and by their appearance is frowned upon today. All right? But what about in this situation? Okay, what about in, in Israel in the time of Samuel and Saul? Remember, Israel said they wanted a king. And they wanted a king to do what? They want a king so that we can be like all the other nations that our king may judges and go out before us and fight our battles. That's what they wanted. Now, today, anyone can effectively fight a battle even if you're only five foot eight. Why? Because all you have to do is be able to drive a tank or shoot a howitzer or a gun, right? It doesn't, it doesn't take physical strength to fight today's battles. But what about back then? If you were going to be a king and lead people in battle back then, that meant uh, riding a horse, wielding a, a sword and a, a shield, maybe wearing heavy armor. It was going to take a certain kind of physical stamina in order to be able to do that. Not to mention inspiring your troops and intimidating the enemy. Right? But just because one looks the part doesn't necessarily mean that they can actually do it. 
And so I think that's one of the reasons why Sam, Samuel puts him to the test a little. He wants to see uh, what he's made of. So did he pass? Did Saul pass Samuel's test? Well, look what happens the next morning. Jump down to chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? So he, he anoints Saul as king. And I think that um, uh, he is doing this in obedience to God's command. Obviously, we see him here acknowledging God's call and uh, and he's obeying that but he but there's more to it than that. I think Samuel is starting to warm up to Saul. Because look what happens a little bit later on. Jump down now to verse 24. Um, and this kind of this takes place after there is this ceremony which they use to to actually uh indicate that that uh that Saul is the one that's been chosen. They cast lots to show that Saul's the one that's been chosen by God. Everybody would understand that, that, that God was in control of that situation. Um, and after they do that, in verse 24 it says, And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen, that there is no one like him among all the people? So Samuel's starting to warm up to Saul. He He's kind of starting to um, to buy into this whole thing. He's saying, okay, Lord, you're right. I think this is the guy. But despite Saul's impressive physical stature, and in spite of what Samuel says here, not everybody is convinced. Good verse 27. It says, but some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents. But he held his peace. So Samuel's starting to buy in. A lot of the Israelites are, but there's a few that still they're not convinced. Why? Well, they didn't have the advantage of hearing God's actual voice saying, this is the one I've selected. So there's that. Um, maybe they don't trust Samuel. You know, he's the one that uh, initially appointed his sons to succeed him, and that didn't go so well. Or maybe they just understand that looks can be deceiving. And so they're looking at Saul and they're saying, okay, yeah, he looks like it, but how do we know for sure that he can do it? You've heard the old proverb, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Well, what does that mean? It means that the only way to truly find out the quality or the worth of something, you have to test it. You want to see if that pudding's any good? you're going to have to take a bite. And it doesn't take long before Saul gets his chance to prove his worth. We see it in chapter 11. In chapter 11, details a confrontation between the Ammonites and the city of Jabesh-Gilead. Let's read starting in verse 1. It says, Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, 
Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then, if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, What troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard the news, and his anger was greatly aroused. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. Then he numbered them in Bezek. The children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So then, maybe this is the true measure of man. If it's not physical stature, is it uh, perhaps successful achievements? Is that how we should determine the measure of a man? God gave Israel exactly the leader that they asked for, and not in appearance only. He actually had the ability to do what they wanted, as he proves here. He inspires the people to act, he leads them into battle, and he defeats the enemy. Not too bad for the first time out. The people are certainly impressed. Look at what it says in verse 12. It says, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. See, <laughs> see, those were the people. Remember, there were some people that weren't convinced. They're saying, Who were those people that weren't convinced? Just bring them to us now. We're, we're just going to kill them. Right? They, they, now that they've seen Saul in action, they are sold. He's the guy. And even Samuel seems now to have to be all in. Look what it says in verse 14. It says, Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. Samuel's convinced. Most of the people are convinced. And it's hard to argue with success. And I think, boy, have we really bought into this today in our culture. In business, in politics, and even in the church. Earlier, as I was praying, you know, about the situation in in uh, <clears throat> Washington D.C. this past week, you know, there's a I, I understand there's a lot of Christians that are still supporting Donald Trump, and that's okay. I mean, we I think that we need to, um, you know, vote our conscience and and we're how we feel God leading us and so forth. But a lot of people 
um, a lot of Christians that support Donald Trump, one of the reasons that they do it is that they say, um, look at his achievements. I know that he's got some some qualities that are that that we don't necessarily like, but look at what he's getting done. Look at the judges that have been appointed. Look at the laws that have been passed. Look at how uh, the economic growth in the country, at least before COVID hit anyway. And they say, you know, how can you not argue with his achievements? How can you not argue with his success? And I think we do the same thing to church leaders. Sometimes, you know, we, we look and we say, wow, look how big the church has grown under this guy. Look how successful he is. And we put them on pedestals. And we, we in, start inviting them to speak in all the conferences and write books and, and preach on the radio and on TV. And then we're shocked and we're outraged when they come crashing down. And I'm not saying that, that achievements, accomplishments are unimportant, but are they the right measure of a person? Is that the standard by which we judge the kind of person they are? And I think that what's more important than the successful achievements that they make is how did they achieve those successes? You know, there's all kinds of different ways to achieve success. Hard work, talent, persistence, sometimes even a little bit of luck, just to name a few. And all those things are okay. But there's other ways to achieve success. Some people do it through lying, cheating, abuse of power, taking advantage of others. And some people would say, well, you know, the end justifies the means. Well, the world may subscribe to that kind of thinking, but I don't think that Christians should. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, But He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And a little bit later in the same book, chapter 2, verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. The, the Lord cares just as much about how we accomplish things as He does what we accomplish. So how did Saul achieve success? Was it just because he was a strapping, strong young man who stood head and shoulders above the rest? Is that how he achieved his success? Well, no. It turns out Saul had some help. And if, you, if we go back and look, what we see is that God was at work in Saul's heart and in his life. Look at chapter 10, verse 9. This is after um, Samuel has anointed him and given him some more information about what's going to happen. It says, So it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. 
God gave Saul another heart. Chapter 11, verse 6, I just read it. Did you notice? After he finds out what's going on up in Jabesh Gilead, verse 6 it says, Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard the news. Saul didn't accomplish this great victory by his own strength and abilities. God did it through him. And this leads me to conclude that the best measure of a man is a heart that is oriented towards God. Physical stature and successful achievements are not necessarily bad things. There may be valid situations where these need to be considered. But they are not the true or the best measure of a man. The difficulty is, the state of the heart is not something that we can see with our eyes. It has to be tested by other means, and that's not always easy. So how do you do that? How do you um, test to find out the measure of a man if the measurement is a heart that is oriented towards God? Well, I think the best way is you have to see how a person handles himself or herself in trials and tribulations. And we often forget that, or we get distracted, or sometimes we just plain get lazy. And we don't want to go to the trouble, especially if we like the person. We, if we like somebody, we just want to assume the best about them. And I think that this is what is, it happened between Samuel and Saul. Samuel got to where he genuinely liked Saul. And I th- we're going to see evidence of that in the weeks ahead. And he got caught up in the excitement of the victory and all the people are happy and they're throwing their weight behind uh, Saul. And Samuel got caught up in that. But he missed the fact that what was really driving Saul's success was not how he looked. was not his physical stature. And it wasn't even this accomplishment. It was God working in and through him in his heart. Because as we're going to find out as we continue the story, we're also going to see what happens when Saul turns out not to be the person that Samuel thought he was. Now if we measure people by this standard, by a heart that is oriented towards God, I think that it will save us a lot of heartache in our churches, in our institutions, and even in our personal relationships. And it's also important that we measure ourselves by the same standard as well. Which we're going to have an opportunity to do this morning at the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we often turn to when we celebrate the Lord's table, we're told that... uh, In verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of Christ. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Well, what is self-examination if not taking the measure of ourselves? That's what it is. And yes, it will include specific acts that we may need to confess before God. It may include some broken relationships that we need to restore. But as you reflect, and in a few minutes, the uh, deacons are going to come around and distribute the elements, and you're going to have time to pause and reflect and to examine, to take the measure of yourself. Don't ignore the bigger picture and ask yourself this question. How has God been at work in your heart? Are you growing in your heart orientation toward God? None of us is perfect, but we strive to be to draw closer and closer to that day by day. So do you see evidence of that growth? Are you more inclined to respond to trials and tribulations in your own life in a way that would honor God today than you were a year ago? And if not, what do you need to do differently? So take time and, and just reflect upon that question as the men come forward to help us distribute the elements. No, I'll do that after. We don't have a we don't have a microphone here, do we? Here, just use this one. Do you mind praying for the cup? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good God that you are. We thank you that you're willing to send your Son, the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to this world that we could have eternal life for believing in him. We thank you, Father, that Jesus was willing to come to this earth, to live and to die. His body was bruised, beaten upon, spit upon, and his blood was shed. Thank you so much for doing this for us. Thank you for your great love, for your mercy and your grace. Father, help us to remember what Christ did for us through the eating and the drinking of this communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rick.
Paul writes also in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat. This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same manner, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The true measure of a man and a woman is not found in physical stature, or in successful accomplishments, but rather in a heart that is oriented towards God. We need to see that in others, and we need to see it in ourselves. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You again for the gifts of mercy and grace that You have bestowed upon us. And especially in these troubling times, help us to be people who are measured by our hearts being oriented towards you. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.